Well, this morning we finish up our discussion of uh, Hebrews 11 and 12 with the last section of Hebrews 12. And in the process of writing this sermon this week, uh, the image came to mind of the metaphor that people use that say, if, if you check out how sausage is made, you don't want to eat it. Um, <laughs> it may be similarly said of a sermon. The last thing you want to know is how a sermon is put together. Uh, you'd much rather just hear it. But yet I went through this process this week, and so sort of opening the door and letting you into some of the way the sausage was made this week at, at the risk of doing that. Sometimes what one plans to preach is not what he or she ends up preaching. The sermon that the preacher thought was there is really not there. Hopefully one reaches that conclusion before Saturday night. Um, <laughs> sometimes one reaches that conclusion on Sunday morning. I will not tell you which it was. Um, <laughs> but I had originally titled this sermon when I was planning this series, A Tale of Two Cities. That's because what I thought I saw here was a sense of the comparison of, of the two cities that are kind of a theme in the Bible, the, the Jerusalem that we build, the, the Jerusalem that is the city to which the people, uh, you know, go into Palestine and, and build the city of Jerusalem, and it becomes a kind of holy city. The Psalms sing of it. Uh, we read some of those allusions today. And, but there is another city, and that is the, the Zion, the city that God promises, the city in Revelation 21 that falls literally or is, comes down out of heaven from God and, and establishes God's presence permanently with his people. And, and that tale of two cities or that, those two Zions, the ideal city of God and the, the city that we built that aspires to that but never quite arrives, well, that was a theme in search of a text. I thought this was a text. It's not. <laughs> it's more of a book than it is a sermon of just how the Bible has that theme of these two cities and our own struggle in faith to try and create it, but knowing all the while that we won't quite get there. So watch for that. Coming attractions of what might occur at some point in my preaching or, or my writing. But I think the better title for this series, or this, this sermon rather, is calisthenics for the faithful. At this end of, of this section that I, I've chosen to preach on, uh, what the writer is doing is saying, okay, this is what faith is. This is what faithfulness looks like. This is who has been faithful. Uh, now, how is it that we kind of take up that journey of faithfulness? And, and what is it that we need to do to discipline ourselves to be faithful? And so, I think the better title is either calisthenics for the faithful or staying in shape between the times, between that sense of what is already true in Jesus Christ and what will one day be fully true. And that's definitely what the writer of Hebrews is talking about in this last part of chapter 12, that the path of faithfulness requires some discipline. And so I'm going to back up to the two verses that we ended with last week and read from verse 12 all the way through to the end of the chapter in verse 29, and be thinking about this call to discipline or staying in shape between the times. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with everyone and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. 
See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and through it many become defiled. See to it that no one becomes like Esau, an immoral and godless person who sold his birthright for a single meal. You know that later, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent even though he sought the blessing with tears. You've not come to something that can be touched, a blazing fire and a darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg not another word be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even an animal touches the mountain, it shall be stoned to death. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse the one who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused the one who warned them on earth, how much less will we escape if we reject the one who warns from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. This phrase yet once more indicates the removal of what is shaken, that is created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us give thanks by which we offer to God an acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for indeed our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray. Lord, take us into this ancient text and help us to take on what we can to understand that it is about an era that is very different from our own, taken and written in a context very different from our own. And so help us to hear what you have us to know in this day and the enduring truths within it. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, when I, I read the passage in verses 12 and 13 about lift your drooping hands and make firm your weak knees, I can't help but think of the work of getting old and trying to maintain flexibility and strength in the midst of our aging. They say that that's the most important thing, you know, you're not going to be who you were at 25, but you also don't have to be someone who's completely frozen. If you work on flexibility and you work on strength, if you lift your drooping hands and you make firm your weak knees, so to speak, it's a lower bar for those of us that are <laughs> moving toward the end of life. But it's an important work and it's, it's hard work. And we don't do it with the expectation that we are in and through our efforts going to make our lives like they were at 25 there's really actually nothing scarier than watching someone try to do that um, but it's an invitation to facilitate the journey for this stage of life of that sense of 
how we can keep going and keep walking faithfully on, on the journey with Jesus, irrespective of the shape we're in, because we're keeping focused on him. And so we develop flexibility and strength for the journey of faithfulness. We won't be perfect, but the discipline of focusing on the one who is out in front will facilitate the journey. And it will do so in whatever stage we find ourselves. And remember the context of Hebrews, because that's an important part of this admonition. The context of Hebrews, if it, if it was indeed written in the context of, of the persecution of Christians during the, the reign of Nero, the Roman emperor, it was a difficult life that they were living. It was not an easy life because the kingdom under whose thumb the, the church was existing was pretty much wanting to send the message that Caesar is king and, and not Jesus. And so the kingdom of God to which they aspired was something that they looked forward to. Something they looked forward to and because they lived between the times. They lived between that already of the declaration of the Lordship of Christ and the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus and the not yet of the coming of a new Jerusalem. And I think what the writer of Hebrews is trying to do is to give these people to whom he is preaching a sense of, of how to stay in shape in this in-between time. And as you look at the rest of chapter 12, the first thing he says to us in verse 14 is pursue peace with everyone. He says, don't fail to obtain God's grace and take care not to let a root of bitterness take hold in you. Three very specific admonitions that are all kind of wrapping themselves around the same thing, which is to maintain an emphasis that speaks to the reality of the kingdom of God, rather than to get caught up in the perspectives of this world that take us away from that reality of God. He speaks first of peace. Keep focused on God's shalom. Obviously, as a book written by a, a Hebrew person to Hebrew people, when the word peace, even though it's a Greek word in, in this text, when the word peace is mentioned, it usually is alluding to the Hebrew notion of shalom, which is not just peace, the absence of conflict, but it is peace, the enjoyment of, of God's best. To wish someone shalom is to wish God's best for them, to pray for God's best for them. And so that sense of pursuing peace is to stay focused on God's shalom, God's promised place of enjoying his best and enjoying that position in life that he made us to enjoy. The whole mention of grace is just that constant undertone of throughout the scriptures of God is showing favor toward you. It is not something you've had to earn. It's just something that naturally flows from the heart of God toward his creation. And so God has shown us favor that we did not earn. And so rest in that kindness, live in that love. Don't, as Paul says, receive the grace of God in vain. Don't, don't fail to obtain the grace is what the writer of, of Hebrews is saying. Because as a recipient of that favor, you can now share it with others. You can live in the context of it. And grace can keep us finally from bitterness. 
for an obsessive focus on how we've been wronged. That's what bitterness is. When we're recipients of grace, we are less likely to hold on to those things that are slights from the outside because we know that the one from whom it ultimately matters has already granted us favor. And so just as Paul says in 2 Corinthians to not accept the grace of God in vain, the writer of Hebrews is pointing to the truth here that grace is something that transforms us. So stay focused on that grace. And it takes some work to do that, quite frankly. Stay focused on the grace that you've received. And as a result, you'll be gracious to others. He mentions the story of Esau. And like I said, this whole section, if you don't know the stories of the patriarchs, if you don't know the stories of the Old Testament, this whole section is is a little bit of a mystery to you. But Esau is uh, the brother of Jacob, the son of Isaac. He's a twin of Jacob. Esau, if you know Esau's story, is he was born first and he was kind of the the reckless hunter and Jacob was the thoughtful contemplative uh, shepherd. And Jacob's name literally means heel gripper. So he was trying to grab Esau even from the womb and get born before him so he could get the blessing is the, the name, his name, because he came out of the womb holding Esau's heel. And if you want to read a good novel about that story, read the novel Son of Laughter by Frederick Buechner. It will get you into the patriarch's story in a way that's very enjoyable and also very earthy. Be prepared, very earthy. Uh, but it will, it will give you this story, uh, much of what I, I can't possibly fully recount here. But the writer of Hebrews says, don't be like Esau who traded away his birthright for a, a bowl of beans. It's a story of Esau being desperately hungry after coming in from a hunt and Jacob having cooked up this uh, wonderful stew and, and Esau says, give me the rest of your stew, I want it. And, and Jacob basically negotiates to get his birthright in exchange for the stew. And so Esau comes off as a pretty weak character who is compelled by impulse. And so when the writer of Hebrews says, don't be impulsive like Esau, who who forgot the big picture and focused only on his current desires. All of these things are, are disciplines. All of these things are exercises. They're, they're calisthenics to develop us. Pursue peace. Don't ignore grace. Don't let bitterness grow up in you. But then he goes on to a kind of second exercise, and it's the exercise of perspective. He's been speaking of this to some extent, but He essentially says, live into the reality that is currently unseen. Hold that in your consciousness in some way. He says in verse 18, you have not come to something that can be touched. And what he's really referring to there is Mount Sinai and the order that was given to the people uh, by God not to touch the mountain because the mountain was holy. It was a fear-inducing thing, and, and Sinai was the thing not to be touched. So in some ways, you know, the writer of Hebrews is saying you have not come to something that can be touched. Another way to say what he's saying is you have not come to something that you have to be afraid of touching. It's all different. In Christ, you've come to the Mount Zion, to the new Jerusalem that will come down out of heaven. You've come to Jesus. God has touched you. And so, as we heard in one of the previous weeks, 
there's a line in Hebrews that I think speaks to this of, of what's happened and the, the boldness that, that can be ours. Since then, chapter 4, the end of chapter 4, since then we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tested as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. A bold approach to God is possible. And so that, that sense of, of having been received is what ought to motivate this change in perspective that the writer calls us to. And then the third exercise is basically just listen. This preacher says basically of himself, listen to this sermon that I'm writing. Pay attention to this. There's some important truth here. Listen to and, and meditate on the promise of an unshakable kingdom and an unshakable king. Keep your eyes focused there, and it will change the way you act because it will give you confidence. It will give you boldness. It is that which cannot be taken from you, even though now you may suffer things that seem to contradict that. And finally, he says, give thanks. And gratitude, my friends, is the great game changer in life. It's got a transformative power in it to be grateful for something rather than to live in our disappointment empowers us to lift those drooping hands and make firm those weak knees. I think about the holiday of Thanksgiving coming up. And it's interesting about our own history in, in America. We I mean, many, many countries have annual days of Thanksgiving, and they're often associated with the harvest. But in America, there are two important points at which a president of the United States kind of made a national proclamation of Thanksgiving. One was George Washington in 1789 and November of 1789, where he called people to pray. This was 1789, remember, is the year that the new constitution was adopted, that, that the union was established. Washington is calling the, the nation, the new nation, the 13 colonies now joined to enter into a day of prayers of thanksgiving to God. A second place where that happened was in 1863 from Abraham Lincoln, and it happened after the Battle of Gettysburg. And this is the more poignant of the two in, in my mind, although both came in the wake of a lot of strife. Uh, certainly Gettysburg, with the amount of people killed on those three days and a battlefield uh, littered with bodies. In the wake of that, Abraham Lincoln called for a, a national prayer day of Thanksgiving. It shows us the way in which Thanksgiving is a discipline. Thanksgiving is something that sometimes we have to stretch muscles that we haven't used. Sometimes we have to focus and ask a question that seems absolutely outrageous to ask in the midst of certain situations. Is there something here for which to give thanks? Is there something that God is doing that I have not yet seen? Is there some way that I can engender gratitude when all I want to do is complain? And the answer to that question is yes. And that's the invitation ultimately of this text, is to move to that place of gratitude for the grace of God and to dwell there and to allow it to take us to a brand new place. So I want to read from another place about gratitude. 
and read from this uh, another passage, which is St. Paul talking about those spiritual calisthenics, if you will, and close with this. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bear with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgive each other. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. But above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in the one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Teach and admonish one another in all wisdom and with gratitude in your hearts, sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Live in grace, give thanks, focus on the ultimate loving one in whom all things cohere, and discover the ways in which he's holding you together as well. Let's pray. Lord, give us the strength we need to focus on the bigger picture. Give us the hope and the confidence that comes from that. And then empower us to reflect the love that you've poured into us to those who are around us in this world. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.